I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Welcome to the latest edition of the Football Writers Podcast, featuring me, Mike Calvin, Jordan Jarrett-Bryan of Channel 4 News, and Adrian Clark, the tactical analyst. Crisis? What crisis? Liverpool have won their first three Champions League group games for the first time. They've conceded only two goals in five matches since Virgil van Dijk was injured. Their faith in young players has been rewarded. Their recruitment, once again, has proved to be impeccable. They've a clear style and a consistent playing philosophy. In short, they're ready for Manchester City on Sunday. So, Jordan... Is this a case study in what it takes to be champions? Yes, I think it is. I think we're seeing Liverpool come into terms and readjusting without their, their leader at the back, Virgil van Dijk, who's obviously a massive part of their success last season. And I think they're readjusting defensively to work without him. I think some of that, I've got a list here of, of, of a few things which I think make champions and a key, I think, organisation. I think if you're going to be a champion in a team sport, you have to be organised and know what you're doing. A team identity. Leicester, for me, a few years ago, epitomised that. They all knew what they were doing. They all knew what they were about and they executed the plan to, to, to precision. I think they have to be feared, which is something we'll get into Manchester City in a, in a second, but I think... Champions generally, the opposing team, I think, fears you. Like, oh, God, we don't, want, we don't want to play this team. I think when you've got that fear, that's a sign of we are the champion team here. Hard to score against. I've got here a real gunman. Every champion team needs a, a player that you just know is going to score 25 goals. Strong leadership off the field. I think off the field, someone that in the dressing room, on the training ground, can maintain standards. I think Vincent Company was that for Manchester City off the field. Depth, and I think luck. And I think if you have all of those things in, in the bowl, you'd be struggled to not finish champion. I think Liverpool, I think last year, had all of those things. And going into this game against Manchester City, who I actually think City will win this game, but I think Liverpool have the most amount of components to be a champion this season, I think. Yeah, let's let's put some some names and faces to those qualities, Aid, if we could. Specifically, leadership. Jurgen Klopp. There's been no sense of panic or concern. He's actually made a point of of stating his faith in young players like Reese Williams and Nat Phillips, and also Jordan Henderson. He seems to be the embodiment of that philosophy that whatever happens. We're ready. Absolutely, yeah. No, I think I think Jurgen Klopp is a is a great leader, very natural in in the role, 
and and I, I too I, I agree with you. I think the way he's handled the Virgil Van Dyke injury and the defensive crisis has been so measured and calm, and it's given those young boys confidence because he's not made a fuss. He's not got his excuses in early. He said, "Well, it's fine. We'll, we'll, we'll give we'll give Reese Williams a game. We'll give Nat Phillips a game. These these are kids that I trust." And lo and behold, they've delivered for him. And I think, I mean, Jordan covered covered what it takes to be a champion really, really well. Couple, a couple of other ingredients: a, a hunger for success, hunger for continued success. And and I think that Jordan Henderson embodies that. You look at his performances. This is not a player that's happy that he won the title last season and and prepared to you know see out the rest of his career as a one time title winner. It looks to me as if he's a guy that wants that craves a second Champions League, that craves back to back titles, and, and and that's really important. As is resilience in adversity, and 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 that's something that Liverpool will need this season that they're showing at the moment. And 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 if you've got strong leadership like Klopp, like Henderson and, and other guys around the pitch. I think that the, the players at the front end, Mane and Salah, they're leaders in, in adversity. When, when when things aren't going well, they often deliver. They come up trumps with a goal. They, you're on to a winner. And I, I still believe Liverpool are, are firm favourites to, to land the Premier League again this season. Yeah, mentioning Mane and Salah there, Jordan, what struck me about them was their relentlessness. Now, they were they were visibly furious when they missed the chance to go 6-0 up at Atalanta. <laughs> you, know, you know, that's pretty obsessive stuff, isn't it? It, it is, Mike, and I love it. They got they get criticised quite a lot for being quite selfish individually. They've been, they've been you know, referred to in certain games I've seen before. Oh, Mane should have passed there, Salah should have passed there. And OK, that can come back to bite you on the backside every now and again. But I like the fact that my strikers are selfish and greedy. I like the fact that my strikers, when they're 4-0 up, if my main striker has got two goals and there's a penalty, he's not passing the ball over. I hate seeing strikers passing balls to other people out of sympathy. No, you go and get as many goals... And we saw it with the Women's World Cup a few years ago, a couple of years back when they were criticised. I think it was the American team for beating, was it Thailand? 13, 13 nil, I think it was. I loved it. Go and get 16, go and get 20 goals. I loved that. I think the standards of which Mane and Salah have set themselves at being upset at not scoring the sixth goal shows that their relentlessness and their hunger, as, as Adrian mentions, to want to be better. We want to be better. We want to be better. And the minute you drop your standards to, okay, we could have got seven, but we settle for five. The minute you have that mentality, I think you're on a slippery slope there. So I, I, I personally love it. Yeah. Can you, uh, can you give me an idea of the dynamics of the dressing room when you get a new signing come in, like Diogo Yota, six goals in four games, he puts pressure on the established player, in this case, Firmino. Now, Klopp has made a point of saying that he loves Bobby, and uh, I'm sure he does. I've probably got a picture of him under his pillow at night. But <laughs> when you when you think about it, what is the reaction within the team? Is everyone having just a quiet look out the side of their eye at it? Yeah, a little bit. I think that the the, the day he was signed, Jota, those pearly whites of Firmino, I don't think they'd have been on display. I don't think you've been smiling behind <laughs> the scenes because... He would have known. Ah, oh, this guy. You know, I'm the one. I'm the one that's that's most likely to repl- be replaced here. So, I've got to butt my ideas up. No, I, I think that footballers are human, and and yeah, there's a definite look. If it's someone that's competing for your place, you're a little bit gutted, but but then, 
you you want to be the best that you can be, don't you? As a footballer, it's a short career. You want to win as many trophies as you can. You want to score as many goals as you can. You want to be the best player possible. And and I think most pros realise that you need competition for that. So in many ways, it's like, okay, I'll have some of this. Roll up my sleeves. Let's go. Let, let, let's see if it brings a bit more out of me. I felt it was absolutely imperative that, that Liverpool did bring in a fourth striker that, that could compete this season. And and I expect it to, to extract more from Firmino. It, it's, you've got to keep people on their toes in life, haven't you? You don't want to upset them. You don't want you don't want spirit and morale to 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 go to become awful, but you've got to keep people on their toes. That's why I think Jota is a great signing, not just because of what he's bringing. I mean, a goal every forty-one minutes in the last six games is crazy, but it's also personality. I don't think he's a dislikable character. If Jota had come in and and been Charlie Big Potatoes uh, and act and swanned around like he owned the place, that could have had a really detrimental effect. But by all accounts, he's a he's a lovely person that has settled in very very nice. He's humble, and 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 for that reason, it's it's enhanced Liverpool. Yeah, I thought it was really interesting to see that when Jota was interviewed after his hat trick, the first thing he did was pay tribute to the team. And that gives you, you know, that, that goes right back to your first statement, doesn't it, Jordan? The, the collectivism and, you know, the commonality of champions. Completely. And it also goes to the due diligence paid by Liverpool and Klopp about the kind of players they want to bring into the side. I think for modern day managers, it's not just about how good you are technically. It's about your personality and your character. And I know Adrian will know this as well. Wenger in his earlier spoke about the need to have not only the best players, but the best people within your organisation as well and I think with Jota he's got that I was asked a few times pre-season the best signing of the summer for the, the, for, in regards to the Premier League and I think that Martinez to Villa was up there I think Partey is definitely up there I thought Thiago was the signing of the summer but I think Jota may prove to be the signing of the summer simply because he will keep those those three players on their toes, the front three. And I don't buy this, this argument you hear from people about Harry Kane and Tottenham. Oh, what striker can they buy? Because if you buy a striker, Harry Kane's going to play every week. I don't buy that argument. If you buy the right person, they will come in and they will push Harry Kane and they may take his spot. And I think Liverpool have proven with the best front three, arguably in Europe, they've improved it. There you go. Yeah. Jordan has, has you know put his neck on the block and said that he thinks that City will win on Sunday, Aid. Look at it from the other perspective, if you could. Can you try and argue against that? Well, if obviously, if, if you believe it. Mm. I look at Liverpool and see a team that's healing, quite literally. You've got Thiago on the way back. Matip could play on Sunday. Cater is building momentum again. You know, Fabinho will probably be ready after the international break. Mm. If you had to put your... Your four penny worth in. Do you, do, do you think Liverpool will, will do anything on Sunday? Yeah, I think they're more than capable. I think the draw is probably the uh, a sound pick. I know that sounds like sitting on the fence, but it's a game City can't really afford to lose. That's how they'll see it. And Liverpool will be weary because last time they went to the Etihad, they got spanked, didn't they? 4 0. Obviously, they'd already won the title, but it was a bit of a lesson and they go there without Van Dijk. So I think that Liverpool might be watchful and they need to be watchful. I was looking at some of the stats and it's just incredible the amount of good chances that they've they've let up, uh, that they've conceded this season, Liverpool. Half the shots on target they've faced have gone in. That's not sustainable. I think Alisson w- will improve and, and, and they, they will give up, you know, 
less quality chances. There's only four teams that have given up more big chances, according to Opta. Man United, we'll get to them later. No surprise (laughs) there. And um, the three promoted teams. So, So that's a surprise. So Liverpool are not secure. I don't think we can we can claim that they are ahead of this game, but I think they've got enough against City to 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 get a result because City have not quite clicked, have they? I just think that they're they're still some way off of their their fluent best Manchester City. So yeah, if if I was leaning towards a team to win it, I, I could go the other way and say Liverpool. Well, you know, there are signs obviously that that Kevin De Bruyne's getting back to his best. I think it's five assists in the last week. What really was behind your confidence in City, Jordan? Uh, my confidence comes in the fact that I think City are a team I look at as moments. And I think City on any given game will raise their game <clears throat> to to win these sort of games. I think Adrian makes a, a strong case for Liverpool. I totally understand why somebody would think Liverpool would win this game. I just think these are the kind of games that I think City will really step up and and bring bring their A game towards. Where my doubts come in for Manchester City are putting a run together. I don't have any faith that City can put together a 5, 10, 15 game run. And to be fair, this season with the standard, it might not, you might not need to put such a long run together. But I just have, I have, I have doubts about whether City can put together a sustained period of wins needed to win the title this year. I think that this is not the Manchester City that I think a lot of people think it is. I think if you take out Sterling, De Bruyne and the keeper... That's not as good a team as people think it is. And people say, OK, take out the best three players of any team. They're going to be significantly weaker. Well, I think if you take out, look, look at Bayern Munich, for example, Lewandowski, the keeper, Neuer and Lahm. They're still one of the top two teams in Europe for me. Look at, um, I don't know, who else? Uh, Liverpool, for example. Take out the keeper, Virgil van Dijk and Mane. I still put them in my top three teams to win the European Cup. Whereas I think take out City's best three players, I think they are, there's not a lot there left. There's, there's some good players, but I think those three players are the elite world-class players. And even Aguero, who I'm a massive Aguero fan, we're seeing the end of Aguero now. So I think that on, on one-off game, I think City can be anybody. I just have doubts about whether they can put together a five, six, seven, eight game winning run to win this title. Yeah, I just think, yeah, you're right. Uh, yeah, I agree. And I think a lot of it comes down to defensive security against the top teams last season, apart from Liverpool, that 4-0 win. They conceded goals in all of their home games against the big boys. In the Champions League, we've seen whenever they come up against someone of high quality, they do let in goals, they get caught out. So, so yeah, and, and the one stat I forgot to, to chuck in before is is shots. Now, we I, I think we're all probably in agreement that Liverpool haven't really clicked into gear. They've still had... 27 more shots than anyone else in the division after seven rounds of games. So um, that, I think, tells you where where their strengths lie. I just think their front three right now are a bit hotter than City's front three. But look, City could easily easily win the game, as as Jordan says. Yeah. You talk their aid of defensive certainties. That probably takes us on to Manchester United, doesn't it? In, in, In a really perverse way now I've probably watched well over 2,000 games in the million years that I've been in this game you played in all four divisions you know Jordan tells everyone he's got a bit of techers on the free kick Um, I've heard this yeah (laughs) but you know I have never seen a goal at a professional or even almost a park football level like that first Denver bar goal on Wednesday night can you explain that? Well, it was 
as amateurish, amateurish as it gets, no doubt about that. It was as if United's players were, were zombies for, for that moment, wasn't it? They were in a trance, looking at the ball, concentrating on, on recycling this, this corner. And, and, and they just completely forgot about their defensive responsibilities. Now, who do you blame for that? Do you blame... I think you have to blame the culture, maybe, in terms of personal responsibility. Do player, play, players of that calibre should know better, but they should also care much better than they are at the moment. Think about some of the penalties that they've given away. Pogba against Spurs, Pogba against Arsenal. It didn't look like a player that cared enough about making that those mistakes. And that, I think, does come back to the manager, Ole Gunnar Solskjaer. Is he, has he got enough discipline in that squad? He, he shouldn't have to organise a team to say that when we have a corner, keep two, make sure we have two players back. Don't, don't stand in front of the last man. I mean, that is basic. That is, that is what an, an under-11 team will know. You know, I, I forgive it of an under of an under nine, under eights, under sevens. By the time they get to eleven, you know that. So, so what Matic did, what what Manchester United did there was was as bad as it gets. The, the, the thing, Mike, that was really bad about that goal, sorry, super briefly, was if you look at the goal from the start, Denver Bar's not even on the halfway line. He's quite well into his own half. Mm, <laughs> he's he's into yeah. his own half. It's so, so bad. And the word that Adrian used there, I could not agree with more. It's a lack of care. It, it's, it's the shape of the team. It's a, a team that's saying to me, uh, I just, I really, I'm just here going through the motions. And it poses a really interesting question to me, which I've, I've not quite answered myself yet, which is, Who's, I'm not going to batter Ole this week because I've battered him on every podcast every single week. People know my views on Ole Gunnar Solskjaer. So I'll give him a, I'll give him a week off. But it, it posed the question, who is more responsible for winning games, the players on the pitch or the master that masterminds the structure and the coaching that enables the players to deliver? And I quite, and that's my slight defence of Solskjaer. Is he bad at setting them up correctly or is the system good enough, the players are just clearly down in tools. I think that the examples that Adrian's given, the penalties, these are just sloppy, slack fouls that you just think, oh, I just can't be bothered. And I think it's really, really, really dangerous for United kind of going forward. Yeah, because this is the sort of thing that doesn't happen overnight, does it? I, you know, you've been in dre- enough dressing rooms to know that there does come a tipping point when, when the players, or more usually influential players, basically say, we've had enough of the manager. Is that right? Yeah, well, it happens. It happens a lot. Yeah. Yeah, but I've been involved in, you know, being regarded as a senior player at various teams where, you know, I was getting on a bit and, and you know, people from the board can come to you and just canvas opinion, you know, what's going on behind the scenes. Didn't like that. I did, really didn't like being asked about that because you feel like, you you know, you're speaking behind someone's someone's back. But it does it does happen. I don't think you very often get players go to the board and say, look, this guy's got to go, he's useless. But but I would imagine that conversations behind the scenes will be had with the, with the senior hierarchy at, at Manchester United. I, I just think it comes down to habits, really, and the, the habits that he's instilling into the players. Is he, is he tough enough? Is that management group at Manchester United, have they got enough discipline drilled into those players? It doesn't seem like it from the outside looking in. What what will we tell him will be the team selection this weekend? Because on the back of two really poor performances, is he going to take, you know, a scythe to that starting eleven? Is he going to make some big calls and 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 leave out 
players that let him down just to just to put a marker in the sand. That's what strong managers do. I, I think as well, just briefly as well, I don't think it was a coincidence, guys, that um, Rizzo Potticino was on a, another broadcaster this week as well. Mm-hmm. I have no inside information, but I don't think it was a coincidence that he was there basically using as a shop window, I think, to remind people he's there. And I wouldn't be surprised if at the bare minimum, preliminary a preliminary coffee hasn't taken place between the hierarchy of the club and his people to say, look, we don't, we don't, we don't want you, but you know, we're watching you. Let's keep in touch. If things go really bad over the next three, four, five weeks, let's see where we are then. Because I, I, I just think it was the time it was a bit crazy for me. But, but to, to kind of go against my own point, if I'm Mauricio Pochettino, I'm going nowhere near that job. And people say, she United, why would you turn that down, blah, blah. While that border there, if I'm Mauricio Pochettino, I'm going nowhere near that particular job. But, but it's, it's just crazy highs and lows. That's why it's so hard to sort of fathom Manchester United because it's only a week ago that they absolutely destroyed Leipzig. And it was yeah. it was great to and, watch. And, and they'd had before the the game in Turkey, they'd had ten away wins on the bounce. Yeah, it's it, it is really that's the big dilemma that United's board have because you get these really awful performances, and then you get these tactical gems, and you just think, what sort of? I don't know. I can't categorically decide whether Solskjaer's but Adrian, good or not. But Adrian, here's the thing. Before, as an Arsenal fan, we're Arsenal fans here, I was concerned about this game before Arsenal beat United because it felt to me like we just caught United, as Chelsea did, at the start of one of United's really good runs before they got a bad run. But here's the thing now. They're not even having those good runs anymore. It was no. two results and they're, 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 there's, there's two defeats now. So I, I think that the board will be looking at Solskjaer and thinking, can we sack him? And if we do, how does that reflect on us as a board. This is the fourth manager now, post-Ferguson. How does that reflect on us as a board? So I think there's going to be some... some the Everton game is, is, is huge. If they lose that game, I wouldn't say he'll be fired, but I think I think the talk over the international break will, will be insufferable. Yeah, well, and the international break is usually when these uh, type of decisions are taken, isn't it? Uh, and especially, what is it, we're in the, in the third international break of the season already very soon. So... Yeah, you know, I, I think we will have to have our eyes open as, as to what happens after the, the game at Goodison. On that point, you said there, Aid, that we'll find out a little bit about Solskjaer's mettle by his team selection. I thought it was very strange. You know, he redeployed Matic last night as an auxiliary centre-half after half-time, which didn't make any sense to me at all. And is it also unfair to judge Dean Henderson on that? Oh, yeah. I mean, yes, Dean Henderson's got nothing to do with Manchester United's problems, has he? He's he's a decent keeper. He's unlucky, wasn't he, that that David De Gea was given the nod. And in fairness to David De Gea, I don't think he's done that much wrong. You you wouldn't say there's a clamour to to replace him. I think what happened in the game in Istanbul was Twanzebi had a bad bad half. He, he, He was poor and... And he felt on a yellow card, he felt that, that he had no option but to put Matic back there. But it's not a great reflection of their depth. I thought it was criminal, really, of Manchester United not to strengthen the centre-back department last summer. When you think about the money they spent on Donny van der Beek, who clearly Oli Gunnar Solskjaer wasn't fussed about having. If he was, he'd be in the team. Why didn't they spend that money on a decent centre-back? It's It's baffling. It really is. So... Yeah, that's. I think that was. That's going to come back to to haunt them. It's it's a really weak area. But but I also feel that that that, that tactically, Ollie is not doing enough to protect the fullbacks. Luke Shaw's not a great defender. 
and but he's getting zero protection. When they play four three three, Rashford rightly stays forward as much as possible. When they play the midfield diamond, you need Pogba to slide across and lend a hand. Did he do that against Arsenal? <laughs> no, no, he didn't. Arsenal, all of their best attacks came down Luke Shaw's side. But, but why did you know? I saw that. I'm sure that millions of people watching it could see what was going on. Why did not Gunnar Solskjaer see that? I, th- I do think you have to criticise him in, in some respects. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think, Jordan, we all agree that Everton has spent well. Ricarlison is still suspended. But do you think United will be especially vulnerable if Hamez comes back? I do, because I think he has the guile and the the creativity to really cause havoc in front of a back four that is is, is, is so devoid of confidence. And um, this might sound a bit harsh, but I think intelligence as well. I Hands up, I, I've never been a massive Rodriguez fan. And I was a bit, nah, I, I can't see that going well, Everton, so I look like an idiot already. Um, he's always flattered, flattered to deceive for me, despite having a fantastic career at Bayern Munich and Real Madrid. I wasn't as enthused about that signing as a lot of people were. But he's had, he's had a great start to his time in the Premier League. And I just think that he could have some real fun linking up with the likes of uh, Dominic Calvert-Lewin, sorry, up front, knowing he has the protection of, I think, the guy that's gone under the radar. I think I said on your on your show last time, Mike, Decore. If Decore plays as well, I think with him and Alan, I think that they could just say to someone like Rodriguez, just go and do your thing. Just get the ball on the half turn and just feed him in, create havoc, create havoc against the United side who they will be feeling the pressure. They will be feeding the tension. The talk in the build-up to the game will all be around Ole Gunnar Solskjaer and this being a must-not-lose game. So if I was Everton and I was Rodriguez, I'll be playing on that and I'll be looking to have some real fun in front of a back four that, um, or against a back four that I think is in, is in bits right now. Mm. It wasn't so long ago, was it, Aid, that we were all wondering about Frank Lampard? <laughs> and... Um, you know, he's he's got a few. Well, I think it's uh, you know, Mondi has had six clean sheets. There seems to be a sense of momentum gathering there. Timo Werner is growing in stature, and, and you know, as you know, one of the senior players in the dressing room always ends up taking the pens. There does look to be a consistency and a cohesion about them at the moment, doesn't there? Well, he's beginning to find his best team, isn't he? And and you couldn't say that in the opening weeks. Certainly with the defence, he kept changing it. Every every game, you saw at least one or two component parts of the goalkeeper and back four, sometimes it was a back five, altering. And what he's doing now, he's, he's trying to settle on a on a unit. And it's worked. I think the focus on on finding a clean sheet mentality is the, is the right way to go because you look at the... The talent they've got going forward, it's, you know, that, that they will win a lot of games if they have a clean sheet mentality. So, so yeah, no, it's, things are turning round. Yeah, I still have slight question marks about them at the back. I think I think that both fullbacks are, are far better going forward than than they are without the ball, James and Chilwell. But, but yeah, Thiago Silva and Zuma are striking up a really good chemistry. You haven't said that about a Chelsea centre-back partnership for a while. So so yeah, no Chelsea Chelsea in, in, in much better shape right now. Mm. What do you think is the their potential this season, Jordan? Yeah, we had Darren on the show, Darren Lewis, and he, he he's talking about Chelsea as you know, potential champion. Yeah, but that's Darren. I heard that. Darren, Darren, Darren. Um, <laughs> um, I heard that show. And, and, and to be fair, when he made that 
that claim, it made me think. It made me think, actually, could they be... I think Chelsea are title contenders by default. And what I mean by that is, apart from Liverpool and even Liverpool, who's really looking like title contenders? No one looks really serious right now. I think the pressure from above, from Roman Abramovich and the hierarchy at Chelsea, I think, with the expenditure they made this summer, was saying to him inadvertently, we expect a title challenge. I don't think a top four with that outlay for me is good enough. So I think they'll be expecting it. I mean, I think we're going to still see some crazy results. I, I like Adrian. I'm not totally convinced that Lampard has fixed the defensive problems. However, again, I will give him credit because I was I was scrutinising him hard about his ability to, to learn and improve that defence. People were saying to me, Chelsea people I know... <clears throat> Wait till he gets his back four. Judge him when he's got his back four in and he seems to have his back four in and then the, the, the results are improving. So fair's fair. I, I, I think by default they're, 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 they're contenders because I just don't see anybody really, really you know, throwing their hand in the air to say, we're going to take Liverpool's crown this season. Yeah, one caveat to that I'll just say is, and I know that Chelsea weren't in such a good place then, is remember the Chelsea-Liverpool game. They were comprehensively you know, out, outplayed in that game. Liverpool were better in every department, weren't they? So so I still think there's a gap. But yeah, you're right. They they, they could. They could finish second or third. Right. What about you know, the, the broader implications of Kai Havertz testing positive for the coronavirus? We're seeing around Europe teams being stripped bare, aren't we? Because of the pandemic, Ajax were down on a few players, Shakhtar, Dynamo Kiev against Barcelona, third choice goalkeeper. Is all this beginning to challenge the competitive credibility of the Champions League, do you think? And is it reckless to keep on playing regardless? Uh, I just think it's football in 2020. If we, want to watch, if we all want to watch football, if, if the powers that be want to put on football, these things are going to happen and we have to just accept it. It's happened to these teams. It could happen to a Chelsea. It could happen to one of ours and... They could be severely depleted, but it's not a club in the Champions League, is there, that, that couldn't field an eleven that don't have COVID-19. I mean, they've all got big squads. You just If we're playing on, we're playing on, aren't we? And, and we've just got to accept that that sometimes, a little like injuries, you, you're going to be in a in a weaker state, no? Sorry, the, the, word, the word credibility used there, Mike, I think is key. Is, it, is, it, is this harming the credibility of the competition? I think to some degree it is. But if we accept that it can happen to everybody, then it's almost a level playing field for everybody. I think there's an issue to be t- discussed around the crossing borders. So it's one thing having football domestically still and, and protecting players there. But do you have to have international friendlies, for example? Do you have to have a club competition, the Champions League, where you're going into countries that have different levels of a COVID threat? That There's an element, which I'll save for my thought of the day at the end, that kind of touched on that as well. But I think that Kai Havertz having it, I just think we're going to see more and more of it. I think when it gets to a point where, well, what is the point where we decide, hang on a minute, we're endangering people's safety here just to watch watch football. But I think we all can agree that money is the reason that they're, gonna, they're not going to stop it until they really have to. Mm, it's it's going to, well, they are uniquely difficult circumstances in which to manage, aren't they? Do you think we're a bit stingy sometimes with our praise? I just want to pick up a few, a, a few managers, if I could. Since this is a Guna Fest, we might as well start with Mikel Arteta. What about the pros and cons, Aid? Well, it's lots of pros. I, I think we, we also. I think it was a big a landmark win. Obviously, away to the big six. It's not happened for Arsenal 
for nearly five years. So that was that was a really big victory at Manchester United. And I think I think that the, the two of the standout players, actually the three standout players in the game, I think you you can you can sort of put as a you doth your cap to Mikel Arteta with Gabriel and Thomas Partey, the two new boys, players that he clearly recommended and wanted. They were immense that, that you could see how much that they'll bring to the table. And the other one was was Moel Nenny, who <laughs> Mikel Arteta has brought back from the cold, hasn't he? I mean, he was he was on his way out. Yeah, a lot of Arsenal fans have forgotten Moel Nenny was still registered. Yeah, he was he was outstanding alongside Partey. So so yeah, he's done well there. The structure is brilliant. We know that we've been over it tactically. He's a smart guy. The cons. And I think there's only one, there's one big con at the moment, and that is the lack of spontaneity inside the final third. I think that is the next stage of the development. At the moment, he's going through a process of structure, 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 habits, habits, habits. The next stage is, okay, you've nailed that. Now I want to see a bit more fluidity, movement, off-the-cuff magic inside the final third. At the moment, Arsenal do lack that. What do you think, um, Jordan? Yeah, I've read and, and heard a lot of um, Adrian's work since Arteta's been appointed. And you've probably got the two biggest Arteta cheerleaders on your podcast right now that you could have found anywhere in the world. <laughs> um, I, I agree. There's not many cons as far as I'm concerned. There are some, but not many. It's interesting that Adrian mentions Partey and Gabriel as two significant players for, for Arteta and, and for rightly so for the reasons that Adrian has laid out. I would say the thing that has impressed me more than his, his ability to identify two players players to bring in will be the players that I wrote off who I think he's improved. I've never been a Bellerin fan. Never. Even when he broke through, he was an Arsenal product. He was quick and exciting. I have questions about his defensive capabilities. His his ball is average and that's being kind. I think he often goes to sleep, often in, in defensive positions a lot of the time. But I don't think since the, well, this season for sure, I can't think of a bad game that Bellerin has had. I guess some games where he's not been spectacular, but I don't think he's had a bad game. And his ability to make him just a normal 6 out of 10 right back every single week for me is a, is a, is a tick for me. And Elneny is the other person. Again, as, as Rajan says, we forgot about him. There was an element of the kind of Francis Coquelin the kind of cheap budget defensive midfielder who you've forgotten about, who does well for a little while. I don't think he's the answer. And I think he should still be a squad player. But I think when you have a dog, I call him a dog, a dog like him in the middle of the pitch, next to a party or next to a Shaka, you really give Arsenal that, that defensive solidity and bite that I think we've been lacking for so long. Arteta's made us hard to beat. The cons, I agree. The spontaneity is a, is a huge one as well. I think also Pepe. Pepe is, is something that I think he will be judged by as well. I know it wasn't his signing, but he's a record signing. And the fact that he's not even starting him in games, he has to find a way to get him right. He's not the only person that hasn't started him. Unai Emre didn't start him very many games, and nor did Lundberg. But I think if he can get Pepe right and get that front three fluid and firing, I think Arsenal could get top three this season. OK, well, we'll put the pom-poms away, shall we? Um, <laughs> uh, the, one of the games I'm looking forward to at the weekend, Leicester at home to Wolves on Sunday. Let's talk a little bit about Brendan Rodgers. Do you think he needed to be so chippy about the relative lack of praise as a British manager? You know, surely, you know, we acknowledge his achievements, don't we? Five wins in seven, Leicester's best ever Premier League start. Well, Brendan always well. Brendan always welcomes people talking about Brendan, doesn't he? So, so yeah, he'll be pleased. <laughs> no, he was. I mean, didn't get it. I didn't understand where he was coming from. I, I think most people that 
that follow football closely all recognise that he's a really good coach. He's a, he's a great tactician. I personally quite like him. Sorry? He's exceptional. He's, he's really, really good. And and he will continue to be good. And, and I, I do think, I actually feel that, that clubs around the world can see what he can see his body of work and and when the time comes for him to move on from Leicester he'll he'll be offered a really really top job because because he knows his way around the block so yeah now Brendan was being a bit I thought that was a bit needless really of, of him um, sorry just, just briefly to, sorry to cut you there Adrian I think the wider issue that he's alluding to about British managers not getting the same credit or or parallel praise that a foreign guy at the big clubs, I thought was a little bit rubbish as well. Because when you think about it, in the last 10, 15 years, United have had David Moyes, didn't work. Okay, maybe there's bigger reasons we're seeing now for why that didn't work. Chelsea have got Frank Lampard. Tottenham, okay, a little while back, had George Graham, who won a League Cup. And Manchester City had had Mark Hughes. So uh, this idea that, you know, British managers don't get the right praise, or I think the point he was alluding to is, we're never considered for the bigger jobs. I think you have to prove yourself. He had a chance at Liverpool. It didn't work. He's done okay at Celtic. He's doing a job at Leicester, and I agree with Adrian. If he can make Leicester a certified top six club, trust me, when Jose gets sacked at Tottenham, and he will get sacked at Tottenham at some point, they will look at him. If Mikel Arteta doesn't work out at Arsenal, they will look at him. So I just think he needs to keep his mouth shut, get his head down, and continue with the job that he's doing at Leicester, which I think is a good to very good job so far. It's such a, a complex and delicate process, isn't it? Building a managerial career. You know, I'll, I'll take the example of Sean Dyche. He's now in a situation after eight years defying the odds at Burnley that it doesn't look like he's ever going to get the break he deserves. And it also looks like the club, or specifically the board who are trying to sell the club, have pushed their luck too far, doesn't it? Yeah, I, I don't know. Yeah, it's it's a strange one. I do feel a bit for Sean Dyche, yeah. I think for his own career, he he probably should have been more selfish and and pushed pushed to leave when he was hotter. So so never you live and learn, don't you? I, I did the same. A- but Adrian, sorry, to Adrian, do, do you think that he's a, he's a victim of his own success in the sense that because he's got a brand of a mm. Sean Dyche team that rules out a lot of inverted commas bigger yeah, clubs? I do. Yeah, I, do. I think that's been a, a slight issue. I think it, there's more to him than meets the eye, and I think he's capable of managing a team with better resources and capable of managing a team that plays a more attractive brand of football. I definitely think he is because he's a he's a very intelligent football person he's got great knowledge and he's clearly a good coach and an excellent organizer so I, I think his capabilities are higher than than other clubs might might perceive but you just wonder if the the, the ship has sailed don't you and I, yeah for me but Burnley just needs something new something fresh M- maybe the change of ownership will will, will do that and spark it and, and regenerate Dyche and his his enthusiasm for that for that role I don't know it, it yeah it just feels a little bit meh at the moment, doesn't it, at Turf Moor? Yeah, well, on an immediate basis, they need to get something at Brighton on Friday evening, don't they? Also, I suppose we can perhaps put into that uh, category, Jordan, Chris Wilder, who, as a personality, I, I love, and I think when you look at his body of work, it's fantastic in terms of getting the most out of what he's got. Uh, I know this is a cliche, but are Sheffield United, who obviously play Saturday against Chelsea, are they suffering from that fabled 
second season syndrome, do you think? Have they been sorted out? So I thought about this the last couple of weeks, what's happened at Sheffield United this season. And I listened to Alison Rudd, who's my favourite football journalist. Don't tell her I said that. And she had a really interesting... Um... She'll find out. <laughs> I'm sure she will. Um, she had an interesting theory. She spoke on a show I listened to a few days ago about the fact that it's not so much second syndrome syndrome, second season syndrome, sorry. It's more the fact that because they don't have the best players in their team, they they, they, they did well of, the, of, of last season, A, of the element of surprise, but secondly, it was an instilling of a hunger, a desire and an anger to want to prove people wrong, which is what got them so many big results last season. Doing that in the second season, when again, you don't have the best players at your disposal is very difficult. And motivating those players to be angry again and to be hardworking and diligent and to buy into all those kind of internal qualities and characteristics when you're still playing against defenders and strikers who are better than you technically can be difficult. And that maybe as as answer the question as to why they're struggling so much this season. I, I don't fear for them because I think eventually they will, they'll get enough points to, to be okay, but I don't think they'll have anywhere near like last season. Um, and I think they may have to, if they do stay in this league a second season, have to invest in better players. And the idea of us being the siege mentality group of players that, okay, we're not, we're not the best, but let's go out there and show them, show them how good we can be, that can only last so long. Yeah, and it's going to cost money, isn't it? Well, even when you look at it, they paid twenty-three million for uh, Rian Brewster, who hasn't really set the world on fire for him yet. Obviously, it's difficult coming up. Do West Brom, in your eyes, Adrian, already have that sort of doomed look? <laughs> it's a bit early to, to write them off completely because there's some quite a lot of average teams in the bottom end of the Premier League at the moment. So, so you, you can't discount some kind of survival act. But yeah, it's not looking great. I don't think a little bit like Sheffield United. I agree completely with with what Jordan just said. I, I thought they should have been shown a bit more ambition actually in the in the transfer market to because they play quite a sophisticated brand of football uh, as well as playing on the underdog tag. So I think they could have attracted better players if they'd speculated. But I guess COVID makes a difference there. And the same same for West Brom. Really, I don't think that they strengthened their defence well enough. Or maybe the central midfield. They went. They started this season with the with the uh, Livermore's, Remain Sawyer's axis, and I think that's been found out a little bit. Conor Gallagher's come in alongside Kravinovic, and I think they've added, added a bit more quality. But yeah, it's and then they signed. Look, they signed Carlin Grant, good player in the championship, but but is he the guy to to you can rely on to keep them up? I don't. I, I, I don't think any of us can be sure of that. So so yeah, look, hand on heart. I'm pretty sure West Brom will get relegated this season and I'm pretty sure Spurs will go and beat them handily at the weekend. Yeah, Spurs at the Hawthorns on Sunday. So, Jordan, having pronounced on um, the short-term nature of Mr Mourinho's tenure at Tottenham, how do you think he's been doing realistically? You know, they've had a ridiculous schedule, haven't they? And he's ov- it, you get signs of the old Mourinho now and again, don't you? That outlaw mentality, he was defending Kane recently. How do you think he's got on? He's done okay. He's done okay. I mean, this turning into the kind of hands up, I've got it wrong podcast from Jordan. <laughs> um, I, 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 I stand by it. I don't think he'll win a trophy at Spurs. And that's not just me being an Arsenal fan and wishing that to happen. I, I don't think he'll win any of the big two trophies. However, I think that he deserves some credit for steadying the ship because there was a period where I think at the start of this season, the back end of last season, Spurs fans again, who I've spoken to, 
were like, oh, here we go, it's starting already. A lot of whining and moaning from Jose again, and we just we just thought, oh, here we go, he's on he's on he's on the he's on the route to um his fifth or sixth album here that's going to be the same as the as the as the second, which was awful. <laughs> um, and I and, and I just and, and I can see it coming, but he steadied the ship. They definitely one of the few teams I think were are benefiting from not having fans in their stadium. I think Arsenal are as well, by the way. And I think he deserves credit for, as you say, coming through a brutal schedule that involves them traveling all over the place and still looking relatively strong. I think this is a big game for them this weekend. If they can kind of just quietly continue to rack up the points, they could force themselves into, I think, the title, title contention. I still have doubts about the defense. The defense I'm still not quite sold on as of yet. But yeah, I, I, I will, you know, I, I'll hammer him when I think it's, it's justified. But I, I think I'll credit him as well when I'm seeing a, a series of results that seem to be positive. The brand of football, the integration of Bale coming into the team as well. I personally, sorry, I, I personally with Gareth Bale wouldn't have him as, a, in, as part of a front three. I would have him as an impact sub. I would leave the Kane-Son axis continuing as it is and buff up the midfield. And I would have Bell coming on or replacing a Son or a Kane in some games. I'm not sure the front three helps the midfield if they go with Kane, Bell and Son. But that's just, that's just my opinion. But yeah, you know, fair play to Mourinho. If they can continue this, the Spurs fans, unfortunately, will be, will, will be happy. Oh, I can't have that, can we, chaps? Come on. No, well, look, I'll conf- as soon as we're on a confession time, I, I agree. I think I, I, I've been really critical of Marina, but credit where it's due. He's 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 having a ve- he's had a very very good start to the season, and let, yeah, let's see if they can keep it up. And Hoiberg, who you know, I presume he had a part in in deciding that that he was a player they wanted. I think that that is turning out to be a great signing. Okay, let's sort of pull things together then, and our thoughts for the day. Jordan, should we start with you? Yeah, so, so so my thought of the day is around the long-term health and well-being of the players. Now, we often hear from players when they retire, I think every player you speak to now will, will have like a dodgy knee or a dodgy ankle or they play through, you know, or Adrian, you, you know, you, you may have some injury, dodgy, dodgy back, back yeah. or whatever it may be. <laughs> and it's a sacrifice, I think, as an athlete, full stop, you make for, for having 5, 10, 15 years of, of prime sporting excellence. Fine, I get it. But I think when you factor in COVID now, and you mentioned Kai Havertz earlier on, Mike, I just wonder if there's going to come a time, I mean, Troy Deeney alluded to it, but before Project Restart about looking after himself before looking after his profession. I wonder if we're going to get to a point where we start thinking to ourselves, are we putting the long-term health both physically in terms of knocks and injuries and just, you know, injecting people to get through games alongside the possible COVID scenarios that we're putting players through and what the impact of that's going to be when they finish. Now, there's, there's a difference between obviously having a dodgy ankle that will never heal and catching COVID. I get that. But I just think the general attitude around players being dispensable almost for entertainment when they finish playing the game, I think is something that needs to be considered at some point soon. I read um, Roy Keane's second book, I think it was, where he spoke about um, Yapstam being at United and how they just the Dutch just don't understand the English mentality of playing through injuries and how Dutch players have a reputation of unless they're ninety nine point nine percent fit they are not playing and while I think in the, in this country we laugh at that and say I'll just get on with it have an injection have an operation get on with it their mentality is 
I'm finished playing at 35. I've got a whole life to live after that. And I don't want to be able to not be able to run for it. So my general point is, I think we need to kind of think about the physical well-being of players. And that was kind of highlighted when Kai Havertz and other players have caught COVID. They kind of we just dismiss it. Oh, he's got COVID. Go out and play in a couple of weeks and you'll be fine. Um, and I think we need to kind of be as, as bystanders and as fans and as broadcasters, just pay a bit more attention to what we're putting players through. Do you identify with that, Aid? Yeah, no, I can see, I can absolutely see that, and I, I think players will. There will be some players out there that feel exactly the same way, hundred percent, and and that they will think they feel like they're guinea pigs, maybe at the moment. But bottom line is, footballers love playing football, and 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 you know they would be more upset if they were told not to play. Mm. Okay, what's your um? A thought to add on to that one. Well, this isn't the first time I've championed this. I think it is on this show. I'm going to run with it until Arsene Wenger and the people at FIFA and and whatnot, until they run with it, right? Bear with me. This week, we've seen some really soft penalties. Salah, Kane, Wren, the Wren game. It's it's just so many soft, soft penalties. And I think we probably have to accept that we're not going to change the culture of how they're given. And, and the culture of how players look, look to buy penalty kicks. And, and it, it just feels to me as if the reward for the really soft fouls inside the box, the reward of a 12-yard free shot is too much. It's not as if you know denying a clear goal-scoring opportunity is responsible for hardly any penalties. It's Too many penalties are deciding titles, are deciding matches. My proposal is that the penalty spot gets moved back. We move the penalty spot back three yards. We have a 15-yard spot so that the skill of taking a penalty and scoring a penalty is much, much harder. And I think that is more proportionate to the the, the nature of the fouls that, that have been given. Puni- punishing defenders for very minor fouls inside the box shouldn't always result in a, in, in a you know, what is it, a 75% chance or more of, of converting from the spot. Let's make it tougher. 15-yard spots. They are the future, Mike. I like it. I do like that. Uh, now, I don't know about you two, but I still cherish the purity of the FA Cup. The big clubs don't take it seriously as they should. Well, there's a surprise. But try telling the likes of Skelmersdale, Eastbourne Borough and Oxford City, whose first round ties are all on BT Sport this weekend, that they don't matter. Well, they do. Now, perhaps more than ever. One important point, though, that we shouldn't miss. It's completely wrong that non-elite clubs get special dispensation to compete in the men's version of the competition, while the women's FA Cup has become a victim of the lockdown. That smacks of a terrible double standard, and it flies in the face of the supposed commitment to protect and enhance the women's game. The politicians who force their will on the FA won't change their minds, do they ever? But they should. Do you agree? Please let me know. In the meantime, thanks to Jordan and Adrian and to you for joining us here on the Football Writers Podcast.
Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm. 